So we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'll give you a summary of this chapter. It's really a simple chapter. It's there's a problem and that's evil. But there's a prescription and that's scripture. That's this chapter. It goes from dark to light. Very simple. Doesn't mean I will be short because there is a list in here that takes a while to get through. So we got to jump in. Verse one, 2 Timothy chapter three. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. When are the last days? Yeah. So if you keep reading down, and we will, you get to verse five, and Paul warns Timothy about what he's gonna talk about and assumes that Timothy will encounter these things in his time. So when Paul uses the term last days, he is not thinking about 2,000 years down the road. He's thinking about right here and right now. So in the Bible, when it uses the last days, that is a term that speaks about a certain period of history. And that period of history began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will conclude with the return of Jesus Christ. That entire time is called the last days. So if you're reading the book of Acts and Peter begins to preach the very first sermon after they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues and the whole crowd thinks, what are you guys, drunk or something? Peter quotes from the prophet Joel in Acts 2.17. And he says, the prophet Joel says, in the last days, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right? Your old men will dream visions and I'm gonna pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter says, that's what's happening right now. So the resurrection has happened and Peter knows we are now in the period that the Bible would call the last days. Now there is a tendency for us as Christians to see history and as history starts to spiral and go out of control, we're like, oh, we're in the last days, right? Like, oh no, everybody freak out. It's the last days. And there's been change, right? For me, since 9-11, there has been this change, I think, in the fabric of our culture. And that change was this. It became very, like, inclusive. Like, every, we include everybody. Everybody's included in this thing. We're all in this thing together, whatever. Inclusive. The only group that's been excluded from the inclusive group, Christians, right? We're the only one that you can still make jokes about. Everything else is like, oh, don't do that. You'll get canceled. They'll bring up that tweet 10 years from now, and you will not get that job, right? But for us, it's different. And like I, it was cemented in my mind about 10 years ago. So for a long time, we would take a trip over to Brookings right around in December because they put on a pretty cool like festival of lights. They do a lot of stuff. Kids like it. And so we'd been doing this for a number of years and we went there and I think it was about 2012. We go to Brookings. It's it's Christmas time. We go up to the, the little park up there and we're gonna go in the park. Kids go in for free and there's like three families and our three families, there's like 50 kids in our three families. So we got a lot of kids. Kids can go in free, so they just run through. We're paying and then we start to walk in and I happen to be in front of the crew because I'm trying to figure out where the kids went. But I knew where they went because they give out free hot cider and cookies. So I headed for the hot cider and cookies and I hear this person, this old person, everyone in Brookings is old. So I hear this old person like, where did all these kids come from? They're like some kind of a crazy gang. They took all my cookies. And so I kind of walk up and I'm acting like I do not know them. They're like, dad, I'm not your dad. Get away from me, kid. Who are you? Can I have a hot cider, right? So I'm doing that thing. And then I'm following them and we're going through the whole light show and stuff. And we come to the pinnacle, which is the nativity scene. And there's the lamb and there's the donkey looking in and the wise men and Mary and Joseph and the manger, you know, you got the whole setup there and everyone's looking at this manger. But guess what was missing? 
no baby Jesus. I'm like, what? So I asked someone that was working there. I'm like, what in the world happened? We've been coming to this for a while. Where's Jesus? And they said, well, this is public property and we're not allowed to put Jesus in here anymore. I said, well, this is so silly looking because you have all these animals and you have Mary and Joseph and the wise men and they're all staring at an empty manger. Like, what are they doing now? Like, you need to just change the whole thing, right? They're like, look at that. That's really cool grass in there. How awesome, right? It was just like, wow. But here's what was really interesting. Guess what everybody was talking about? The missing Jesus. I thought, how interesting is that? It's backfiring on them right? We want to pull Jesus out so no one talks about Jesus. Well, guess what everyone's talking about? Where's Jesus? Why isn't Jesus here? We need Jesus in here. We want Jesus back, right? It was awesome. Because the darker the times get, the brighter your light will shine. And that's the opportunity that we have. So we can moan and like, it's the last days. Oh no, it's saying that. Well, hey, the darker the days, the brighter my light, the brighter your light will be. So the last days, they started, yeah, 2,000 years ago. And Paul says there's gonna be perilous times and there will be perilous times. The good news is when it's dark, our light shine bright. Now what causes the perilous, difficult, problematic times? People. People cause problems. Deer and animals don't cause problems. It's people. So Paul's just now gonna say, here's the kind of people that are gonna lead to all kinds of problems. Evil people, verse two. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's my favorite. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I just love it when Paul goes off in scripture. It's like he has it in his head. Like, I mean, just, you know, he, he's talking to a secretary and he's just right off the top of his head. It's just brilliant. And what you see here is there's really three kind of tiers to this, three kind of divisions. And it all begins with number one, inward idolatry. Because sin always begins in you. Do you know that? It's always a seed that starts in you. Now, it can be watered, no doubt, from all kinds of other sources. Technology is really good at watering sin right now, but it started inside of you, right? So your little Johnny may have been given new ways to sin by the neighborhood kid, but there was always a seed in him. It was already there. They just watered it. They gave him new techniques. That's all that happened, right? It's already in us. And so here's how that seed works. Number one, they're lovers of self. Isn't that what we're told to do today? You gotta learn to love yourself, right? That's good. You gotta learn to love yourself. It's a virtue today. You'll hear it taught in churches. And here's how it's taught. It's taught from Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, where Jesus says this, love your neighbor as your Self, right? So they'll say, in order to learn how to love your neighbor, you've got to love yourself first. Is that what Jesus is saying there? No, Jesus is already assuming you love yourself. You already do. Channel that in a better direction. That's what Jesus is saying, right? Like I can prove that you love yourself. I can prove it tonight. Here's how when you're getting ready to come to Wednesday night service and you're getting yourself all gussied up and you're putting on your best clothes and you're looking in the mirror going, woo, yes. Did you once worry about how I would look? Were you like, man, I hope Matt looks as good as me? It will be hard, but I hope he does. 
I hope he doesn't wear that one green shirt. I just don't like that one. Not flattering for him, not his color. No, you never thought once about me. Why? Because I didn't either. Yeah? You guys did a great job. You look beautiful and all that, but we don't, right? We naturally love ourselves. It's what we do. So the Bible is saying, hey, that needs to be, that lever needs to be turned a bit. So Jesus says, Matthew 16, verse 24, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Not love yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Paul would say Philippians 2, he says, let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ who though he thought it robbery, not robbery, to be one with God, he's God, he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness as a man and humbled himself unto death, the death of the cross. That's the mind we're supposed to have, not loving ourselves, but denying ourselves. So the Bible is not this like, hey, you need to be, Low esteem, you know, think little of yourself. That's not what the Bible is about at all. It's not E or, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible. The Bible is, think about yourself less, you'll be a lot happier. The people just always are dwelling on themselves. You know what? They're miserable people. And the Bible's like, if you'll stop that, deny that, to put that mind away from you and be like Jesus who was other-centered, what you'll find is happiness. So it's not think less of yourself, it's think about yourself less. But this group, number one thing they do is, man, they love themselves. And then number two, they love money. Lovers of money. The word can also be translated, they covet. It's this, hey, I love myself and now I want the world to revolve around me. It's myopic, it's meism, it's the person with the most toys when they die wins. Is that the way to happiness? This is what Jesus says. He says it's better to give than to receive. Do you know that they're finding study after study after study is proving that? There's this great UCLA study that took these couples and they did all these kind of brain imaging on them and different kind of activities, different things. And here's what they found. There's this part of the brain and this part of the brain is called the ventral stratum. And that's the part of the brain that fires in a woman when she's eating like chocolate or when the marriage relationship is super good, if you know what I'm talking about, right? That's the part of the brain. That thing just fires off. What they found was, was this. When a woman is giving, that same part of the brain fires off. Why? Because Jesus said it. It is better to give than receive. And we are in such a culture now, it's like, I just want to accumulate more and more and more and more. And guess what? People aren't happy because it's not going to do it. So they love themselves. They love money. They get more and more and more. And then they boast or they're proud. So if you're worshiping yourself and it's all about you, guess what you want other people to do? You want them to worship you too. You want other people to know how great you are. So how do you make other people know how great you are? Well, you gotta boast. You gotta start telling them how great you are. I have this quote at home from Don King. You know who Don King is? Mike Tyson's guy that got fights for him, promoter. Guy looks like he put his finger in a light sock and his hair just went chink. Don King, so he was talking to the LA Times and he said this, and I quote, quote, I never cease to amaze myself. And there must've been like a gasp because it, then he quickly said, and I say that humbly. <laughs> what? <laughs> how do you say that humbly? I'd hate to see how you say that full of pride because wow, okay, right? That's what happens. You're loving yourself. You want other people then to declare how great you are. So a number of years ago, I was reading these books, uh, kind of newer books, and they're written by pastors. And somehow I ordered two books at the same time, and I only read one page of each of them, and I threw them away. Because the first one, I opened it up, I started to read, 
And the author of this book, who is a pastor, it began like, like this. He said, I was driving in a car, looking at the long lines of people waiting to get into the Charlotte, um, whatever it was, you know, arena for the church service that I was gonna put on. I just went, garbage. And then the next one, I opened it up and the guy was, I was sitting in our 6,000 seat auditorium, amazed that we had been called the fastest growing church in America, garbage. I don't wanna hear from people like that. I don't wanna hear from people like that. I get it, you're trying to do street, I don't care about that. I don't wanna know about you. I want you to inspire me to know more about Jesus. If that's the way a book begins, man, they've got me. If they're telling me how great they are, mm, something's wrong there. Something's not quite right. So these guys are boasting and they're proud. They're arrogant. This is like, arrogance is different than boasting. Arrogance is almost like you're almost scoffing at God. Like, I don't need God. I am a self-made man. I've always loved that, self-made man. Now, how does that work? Did you like go out in the garage when you were a baby with like a DeWalt and some duct tape and you made yourself? Like, what does it mean to be a self-made man? You know what arrogant that is? Because you had no control over your DNA. You had no control over how your parents raised you, which we're finding out is really important. You had no control over the country that you were born in, the opportunities that were given to you. You could have been born in the 13th century, right? And if you weren't of noble blood, which is about one one hundredth of a percent of people, you are a peasant for life and you never escape from it. Are you kidding me? That's why Paul would say, what do you have that was not given to you? Really think that through. What do I have that wasn't given to me? Other people, the way that they lived, people fought for my freedom, died for my freedom. What do I have and enjoy right now that someone else didn't pay for? Man, the list is huge. If you think about that way, it's really hard to be arrogant. So it begins with just this idolatry. You make an idol of yourself. And then it moves into tier number two, which is just outward rebellion. And the first thing it says is disobedient to their parents. I love that. It's in this list. It's also in Romans chapter one, the list there, which is like, you know, adulterers, fornicators, murderers, stealers, liars, disobeyed mom. Like, wow, right? He did not make his bed. <laughs> and it's, to me, it's kind of humorous, but it's hugely important. And this is the deal. If a kid does not learn to respect authority in the home, they're set up for difficulty in life. They will struggle with that, they'll butt their heads against it, and you're always going to have somebody in authority over you. That's why this one is so important. That's why right there, you've got to learn. You've gotta learn. But if you're the idol, right? If you're really a little God, then why should you listen to anybody else? You shouldn't. No one knows better than me. In the Old Testament, this was so important. Guess what happened to disobedient, rebellious kids? They were stoned. And we're not talking CBD. We're talking rocks, stoned. I mean, you, you read it like, man, that is brutal. Because it's that foundational. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 6, 2, and he says, children, obey your parents. Honor your mom and dad. It's the first command with a promise and it will go well with you. Man, if you learn to honor those that are in authority over you, if you learn to honor the position, maybe not the person, maybe you didn't have a good mom or dad, but you just honor the position, it's gonna go well with you. You have a leg up on a bunch of other people. That's what happens. You learn, you learn authority. But these don't, they're disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful. We just say they're spoiled brats. Just Google MTV Sweet 16. Watch one of those episodes and cry because that's happening all the time. Or you're just like, that girl needs a spanking. That dad needs to borrow a belt from one of those kids that's not using it because his pants are around his knees. Just borrow his belt and spank that child. 
because she's spoiled, right? She's ungrateful and she has no idea what's been given to her. Unholy. It's this, there's just no boundary anymore. They haven't been given boundaries. They just keep pushing out and pushing out and pushing out. And this is what I am. And you have to accept me just like I am. And this is it, period. You become unholy and you just push out the boundaries and nothing is off limits anymore. You're just unholy. And then it moves to heartless or without natural affection. So if you're the idol, if you're the most important thing and you're just pushing out unholy, then something happens in your soul and no one else matters. That's really what happens. All that matters is me. I'm it. And how people respond to me and how they treat me, that becomes supreme and nothing else matters. And we've kind of moved to that, right? It used to be people would say, if there was some kind of a disagreement, hey, well, we can agree to disagree. Do we say that anymore? No. If you disagree with me, you need to die. You need to be canceled. You need to be crushed. You need to be run off the stage. It's not like, well, let's have a civil discussion and try to discuss this. And if at the end we don't agree, it's okay. We can, oh, we can, no. Right. Cause it's like, there's no, like not all that matters is me. Like worldview and what our center is, is really important. So a bunch of years ago, I would go over to India like every two years. I made five trips over there. Love that country, love those people. But they have a system that does something to them. It's called Hinduism. And Hinduism believes this, that if you're born disadvantaged somehow, poor, wrong caste, a girl, um, untouchable, whatever it is, crippled, mentally dysfunctioning, then that's the repercussions of a previous life. And now you're just suffering your stupid decisions from a life before, right? That's reincarnation. And it affects them. They let, leave out babies to die on the side of the road. And there's just really like heart rendering things that happen there because that's the underpinning of their culture. And it, and it like was brought home to me this one time. I was at this place called Spencer's Plaza. And I love Spencer's Plaza because India like makes all of our shirts. So you can go to Spencer's Plaza and you go there and you just ask for export shirts and they'll bring you into these rooms. It's just like all like Quicksilver or uh, Armani or whatever for like two bucks a shirt. I'm just like in heaven. I'm like, I'll take them all, man. So Spencer's Plaza is like my happy place. So I was in Spencer's Plaza. I got like 10 shirts and I'm leaving and I walk out and there was this beggar on the sidewalk. And he was like no beggar I've ever seen in my life because from his ribs up, he was, you know, functional. I mean, his hands were kind of messed up, but, but he was functional. But below his rib cage, it's hard to describe, but it was, it was almost like not human. Whatever had happened to him, um, whether it was from a birth defect or something, you know, horrible happened to him as a child, it just, he was messed up, severely messed up, couldn't talk. So I just, I'm staring at him, and it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to be mean, but it was just like almost the engineer in me is like, that can't work. What in the world? So um, I knew how much you're supposed to give to beggars, but I gave him a hundred times that amount. And he just was like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, no problem, man. God bless you. And I, I'm leaving that. I, I left him and I walk around the corner and there was this guy selling all these bumper stickers and the majority of them are in Hindi or they're in Tamil, so I can't read them. There is one in English. You know, you can, you, you've seen them. Like they're just selling 50 or 60. There's one in English and it said this, beggars are fools. And anyone who gives to beggars is a fool. I just went, whoa, I just, what? Huh? But that's Hinduism because you're a fool. They deserve this. He did something a life ago and he's paying for it. The, the underpinnings of a culture really matter because they lead to this kind of heartless, no natural affection that can happen. Like it matters what you believe. It matters what you base your life upon. They're unappeasable next. It means this, you can't make peace with them. It doesn't matter how hard you try because they're number one. And whatever you did was such a huge mistake, you can never make it up to them. So you'll never have peace with them. 
Those kind of people, you just have to wash your hands and say, man, I tried my hardest. I tried my hardest to make peace with you, but you are unappeasable. They're slanderous. The Greek there is diablo. Where we get our word for a great Lamborghini. No, for Satan, right? Because he is the slanderer. He is the accuser. That's what they do. If, if they're believing that somehow you harmed them or did something wrong or didn't accept them exactly like they wanted, then guess what? They're gonna spread it around. They're gonna destroy your reputation. Tell everyone they possibly can to hurt you and get back at you. They have no self-control. They can't stop it. They're just this, it's now the idolatry that's been set up in their heart and the rebellion that is fueling them, they're not in control anymore. That's what happens. They lose their tempers. It's they're the king and look out, I'm gonna roll you over. They're brutal. It just means they're cruel. They enjoy other people being in pain. That's this crescendo, right? So it's just outward rebellion. And when I was reading this, I just thought, man, didn't we see that this summer? Like just this outward kind of just raw. Like you see this just happening sometimes. And I have this uh, article I cut out. It was many years ago. It was actually a riot that happened in London. And the article was in the London Times and they were interviewing this 14-year-old kid that was out there in the middle of this riot for you know, some reason. And they're asking this kid, like, you're 14, you know, why do you care about this? This is like political stuff that maybe older people might care about, but you're 14. And this 14-year-old said, well, I was watching the news and I saw that there was this riot. And I was thinking, man, I could use some new shorts. So I thought, I'm gonna go join in that shorts, that, that riot, because I can get me a pair of shorts and no one will care. And he said, and this is the part I, I was like, no way. He said, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. I'm like, to get a pair of shorts? Bro, you got a really low bar, man. I mean, come on. But that's this idea. It doesn't matter. I will outly, outwardly rebel. Doesn't matter how I hurt other people. What's most important is I want a new pair of shorts. Opportunity of a lifetime. So inward idolatry, outward rebellion, and then just depravity. They despise what is good. They despise what is good or not loving good. Isaiah 5, 20 says there's coming a day when good will be called evil and evil will be called good. We're probably right about there. Where things are so reversed, but it's not new. 100 years ago, there was this guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. He's a nihilistic philosopher who believed in this, that there was gonna come what he called the ubermensch, the superman. And the superman would do whatever he wanted because he was strong enough. And to tell the superman he couldn't do what he wanted would be absolutely incorrect. It'd be like telling a lion not to attack an antelope, the ubermensch. And if you know Nietzsche, the one thing he did not like about Christianity was this, that we elevated the poor, that we helped the weak. Because he believed in evolution that, you know what, should be survival of the fittest. So by you helping the weak and the poor, giving money to a beggar, man, that's just, that's just making the problem worse. They just need to die off so that the ubermensch, the, the super race can emerge. Well, that's exactly what happened in about 1940 in Nietzsche's home country of Germany. The ubermensch did arrive and he did do what he wanted. And for a while, no one said anything until millions and millions of people died. Like, that's scary. It's good being called evil and evil being called good. And it's a very scary, scary time. And there's gonna, they're gonna be treacherous. That just means this, there's no loyalty. There's no loyalty. It's like this, February, what's today? 14th, 15th, 19th, 20th, whatever today is. <laughs> today and everybody is a Tampa Bay fan, right? Everyone jumped on the bandwagon. Oh man, Tom Brady, he's the best. <laughs> That's treacherous. That's what that is. I think if you wanna raise godly children, you make them stick with your loser team, 
period, is what I have forced my kids to do. For years and years, we are loyal. We are sticking with our loser team, period. We will not be treacherous. But treacherous people, they just bounce around. Whatever's popular, whatever's new, what doesn't matter. Just treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure. It means this. If this is what I desire to do right now, I'm going to do it, period. I don't care how it might hurt somebody else. I want to do it, and I will do it. And it says, not lovers of God. Very often for a person to do that, they have to somehow get rid of God. I call it hiding from the gaze of God. And so very often it's, well, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. Well, why not? Well, because I moved in with my boyfriend. Oh, you're hiding from the gaze of God. I see. It's very often what people do. They have to get rid of God. They have to get away from God so that, ah, oh, now he can do whatever I want. Their book ends. Really, I love pleasure, so I can't love God, and I've got to get rid of him. So this is the step. You make an idol of yourself. You become outwardly rebellious, and then just depravity. It's doing whatever you want, drugs, money, sex with him, sex with her, tell I don't need them anymore, and then just shuffle them off to the next thing. And the final form is this, verse five. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Has a form of godliness. Like this stuff, all this stuff here can be couched in spirituality, right? Spirituality now is this. It's not Bible, that's not spirituality. Spirituality is a self-actualization for my personal potential, right? That's modern spirituality. That's what is peddled all the time on the TV, it's this, hey, it's about you actualizing yourself. It's about your potential. It's all that. So Christian Smith, he's a professor at Notre Dame, writes some great books. He says this, this is taught in a lot of churches. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistics is this, good and bad. Okay, do this, don't do that. Therapeutic, what's therapy for? You. Make me feel good make me happy, give me therapy. Deism is this, God, you stay up there until I need you, and then I'll ring my bell so you can bring me another pillow to make me comfortable. He says that is what's taught in churches today. Not all of them, but it's creeping in. It's no longer about God. It's more like, God, you become my sugar daddy. You Give me my best life now, right? Those are the best-selling books. I want my best life now. Not what Jesus says, which is deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's I want my best life now. Hmm, those things are opposed to each other. So how did the switch happen? The switch happened like this. It's, well, God is love, right? And if God is love, what would God want? He'd want me to be happy. That became the gospel. And God is love, right? But what kind of love is God? Is God the fairy, pixie kind of love that just sprinkles dust on us all so we can fly and reach our potential? Is that the kind of love that God has for us? Is that the love that you read in the Bible that God has for us? No. I read about a holy ferocious love for me, that if I am beginning to slip, Hebrews chapter 12 says that my father will come and he will chastise me. Matt, you're about ready to blow it. So I'm coming after you. Holy, ferocious love for me. That counts 99% of the time for my character that will last for eternity and about 1% for my comfort, which is temporary and fading. And he's pursuing, Matt, I want you to be holy as I'm holy, you be holy. But too often people want a gospel that offers them everything and requires nothing from them. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is I'll give you everything and I want you in return. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify, your, glorify God with your body. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross, follow me. It's all in all, both sides. But this one, it's couched in this. It's no longer about glory to God. The Bible is doxological, which means glory to God. Now it's about glory to me. How do I get some of the glory? Wrong, wrong. And we remove God's holy, ferocious love. What we do is we diminish the cross. That's what we do. Make it really so it doesn't matter. What the cross says is this, God hates sin. He does not wink at it. He doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't make comedy shows about it. God does not think sin is funny at all. God says, I hate sin. It kills me, literally. That's what God says. That's what's being said right here, right? So what do we do? Avoid them. (laughs) People like this, that are moving in this direction, spirituality, self-actualization, all that, you avoid them. And it comes in all kinds of forms. I see it on TV, I hear it on the radio, I see it in books and I throw them away. Has a nice form, but look out. But Matt, some of the stuff they say, it's so helpful and good. Yeah, okay. I had this conversation with a person recently. I said, well, here's the thing. If I'm thirsty, I can get a drink of water from the toilet. Most of the stuff in there is good. Probably 99% of it is good, right? I get a drink there. My dog drinks out of it. My cat drinks out of it. My five kids at some point have all drank out of it, okay? I could get a drink out of there because it's mostly good, but I prefer the sink. Sure, you can get something good from that, but I prefer the sink. You don't need it. There's plenty of good, really good sources. I don't go to those sources. I just throw them away. I don't care. Cost me 15 bucks, I'll throw it away. I don't want it. I want Jesus. I don't want moralistic, therapeutic deism because it never changed anybody. I want pure water from as close to the source as I can get. So Paul says, you gotta be really careful because it moves into the church and here's how. Oh my goodness. Verse six, for among them are those who creep, literally in the Greek, worm. (laughs) They worm their way into their houses and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding their faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as was that of these two men. They find weak women. Now, listen, not all women are weak. There are strong women that love Jesus and pray and are solid. These are women who because of sin, it says, and lust. They've got guilt and regret and shame, and they feel worthless because of the past and because of how the enemy is just slamming them for it right now. And when a woman feels that way, there are men that are evil that somehow they have this radar and they can target them. And they're like, there's an easy choice. I'm going, and they're wolves that are preying on women who feel worthless and they take advantage of it. They have not found their sufficiency in, in Jesus, right? Jesus went for one of these women. It's John chapter four. He changed direction, went into the part of town that no one goes into to meet a woman who had been married four times and was shacked up with a man trading sex for rent right then. He went to find her because guess what? She needed Jesus. That's how much Jesus cared for her. And he says, I'll give you water that if you drink of this, you will never thirst again. Because men can make good husbands, but they make terrible gods. And she was making her husband a god. And she was going through, it's the next one. It's the next one. It's the next one. And Jesus says, no, that won't work. Be careful. There are wolves in church. As elders, we're always looking and and men, we'll kick them out. But there's wolves in church. Paul's saying, they're doing this. They'll, They'll work their way in. Always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Here's what wolves do. They're, they're always jumping in the next fad. Whatever the fad is, whatever's kind of popular, whatever's in culture right now, they're gonna jump on that fad. 
They're fad pursuers. What's popular, what's Oprah talking about, what's Deepak Chopra talking about, and they just try to incorporate that same thing into a form of spirituality. Be careful of fads. You know how something's not a fad? If it's around after the dude's dead. There's a lot of like preachers, I just say, once you're gone, no one's gonna care because you're just not teaching Jesus. There's a lot of guys that, man, I still listen to and they're dead because they spoke the truth and it still preaches well today. And he mentions these two dudes, Janus and Jambres. These are the two sorcerers of Pharaoh who mimicked everything Moses did. Stick to a snake, they did it. Blood, water to blood, they did it. Bunch of frogs, they did more frogs. But it came to the fourth one, gnats, and they said, this is the hand of God. So tradition, not scripture, but tradition says, Janice and Jambres said, you guys have the real God, we're headed out with you. So when they left, Janice and Jambres, their names literally mean juggler and trickster. <laughs> what names, right? Just you, the court jesters, that's what they were. They headed out, they went with the people of Israel. They convinced them about the golden calf to get Aaron to make it. They're the ones that brought that heresy in. And then they were killed in Exodus 32. So that's these two dudes, right? So here's what Paul says, verse nine. But they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. They'll get found out. Sin will find you out. Memorize Numbers 32:23. Be sure. The Bible doesn't say that very often. Be sure your sins will find you out. Not God getting you. Just the life that you're living, the seeds that you're planted. Be sure your sins will find you out. And this is what I would say. Pray they find, they find you out fast before that sin becomes besetting and a stronghold of the enemy and it dooms you. Actually pray, God, if I have sin, let it find me fast. I was dealing with a guy a while back. He was not making good decisions. He tried to send a text to the wrong person. He sent it to his wife. So he came into my office crying and he said this, Matt, I am such a failure. I said, why are you such a failure? He goes, I can't even sin right. I said, praise God for that. That's because Hebrews chapter 12, you're a real son and God is chastising you. You should be happy you can't sin right. He protected you from something that's going to destroy you, right? So then here's a solution. 10 minutes, I'll do this. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. There is a list. There is a continuity in what he taught and how he lived and the goal of his life and his patience and his steadfastness. I pray the same thing for me, that what I teach is how I live. It's my goal and my aim and I'm sticking with it no matter what. That's what Paul says. And he goes, Timothy, you know that. You know, this stuff all matched up for me. My persecution and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, Acts 13 and 14, brutal, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anyone have that underlined in their Bible? Yes. That's a promise. You won't find it in the Bible promise book. You probably won't find it on your TBN inspirational calendar for 2021 in February. Hey, February, be encouraged. You live godly, they're gonna come after you. Ooh, okay, right? But this is a promise. It's a promise. Why? Because there is a real enemy. Verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Big picture right here. Paul says, I taught something, I lived it. Bad people, they teach something and they get deceived. What you believe, you will be living. Do you know that? Here's my best example. Roger Bannister. Anybody know who Roger Bannister is? He's the guy that broke the four minute mile. The first guy that did it, 1954. He was told when he was starting to run that, a doctor came out and told him, the human cannot 
run that hard. You will die. He runs it, runs a sub four minute mile, passes out at the finish line. When he woke up, he thought he was dead because the doctor had told him, you're gonna die, right? So no one had done it before. It, it was believed it was impossible. Doctor was saying you can't do it. He does it, 1954. In 1955, 37 people do it. In 1956, 300 people do, did it. In 2021, I'm going to do it. What happened in 1955? They believed they could do it then. Now people do it all the time. What you believe, you'll be living. If you believe, man, I'm gonna follow this teaching and my conduct's gonna follow it and I'm gonna live this kind of like, like Paul did, you will. If you're like these other guys and you're being deceived and you're deceiving your head up, okay, look out. Disaster, destruction is coming for you. Be careful. Paul just says, I believe God's word. Listen, in the Christian faith, there is no standing still. Do you know that? You're either my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my perseverance, and I'm going forward, or this list that we've spent a lot of time on, and you're going backwards. It's one or the other. There is no pause button. You can't stay still. If you're old enough, if you're not in the nursery, you already know that. You know the trajectory of your life. It's like this. I was, this one year, I was fishing out on the coast. I was doing an inflatable Tahiti, which is a mistake, because you have sharp objects and you have sharp fish. And I had a lot of holes in the boat. So the bottom was deflated and I was coming into the Chetco River and it happened to be the winter time. So it's a good flow and the tide was going out and I'm paddling into the Chetco River trying to get in. And I paddled hard for about a minute and I made about 10 feet and I had a hundred feet to go. And I was sitting there paddling and I'm thinking, what do you do? If I stop paddling, Japan probably not good. I just had to keep paddling. And I think it was about 10 minutes. I was completely spent before I found a little cove to duck into and just went, ah. that's the Christian faith. You stop paddling, but Japan, you know, you're gone. Be careful. It's a warning here. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. It's this incredible little text. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Mom and grandma, mom and grandma made Timothy. Praise God for moms. I am who I am because of Jean Heberly. My mom taught me the scriptures, prayed for me, loved me. She's awesome, right? Same with Timothy. And how from a childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for what's right, for reproof, for what's not right, for correction, how to get right, and for training in righteousness, how to stay right, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are to stick, love, Read, meditate, study the word. It is the fuel for the Christian life. There is no substitute. What about preaching, Matt? Yeah, that's chapter four. I charge you to preach the Bible fully. Preaching is important too. But that does not negate my responsibility, our responsibility to say, I also need to read. Put it on your app. Put the ESV app on your, Bible, on your phone and just press play. Man, it's so brilliant the way that you and I can have access to God's word today. It's the lamp to our feet. It's the light to our path. Every bit of it, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 31,103 verses, all 788,280 words. I counted them, I know. <laughs> it's it. It's God breathed. And there's all these fancy words, you know, plenary, verbal, inspiration, or inerrancy. It's just, to me, simple. This is God's word. You know how I know it's God's word? Because the men in it are morons, right? Moses is a murderer that loses his temper, okay? Abraham, the father of faith, loses his faith at like the most important points. Peter denies. I, I mean, are you kidding me? No one escapes from this book well. 
Now, if men just wrote this book to control people, don't you think they would have cleaned up their own little area of it? Like, Peter, you know what? That little deny thing, let's just ignore that, right? Moses, you know the murder thing? Let's just gloss over that. But they didn't. There's only one in scripture who's a hero, and it's Jesus. That's how I know it's God's word. Study this book. It makes you profitable and equipped for every good work. But it doesn't cover everything, Matt. Doesn't tell me if my wife and I should have birth control or how many kids we should have or what job I should take. It's not supposed to. What it's supposed to do, is supposed to shape your heart so that you think like Jesus. That's what scripture does. It makes us into the image of the son. It's Romans 8, 29. That God's goal for each of us is real simple, to be conformed to the image of the son the real true human that demonstrated how life is to be lived. And scripture is used in that process. Study the scripture. Read it this week. You will not be disappointed. So Jesus, I pray for each of us. I pray that we are paddling hard I pray for those of us, Lord, that may have grown weary in well-doing, wanting to rest. I pray that by your spirit, even in this moment, you would empower us. You would encourage us. You would strengthen us to fight the good fight of faith for our kids, for our communities, for ourselves. I pray, Lord, for Edgewater as a body. I pray against any tendency that we might have to drift into the things that Paul has warned against because we have an enemy that wants to appear as an angel of light and to make the doctrine of demons seem a delight. Oh, protect us from that, Lord. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray. I ask as we go from here and head home that we be careful and prayerful and obedient servants. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.